If you have your uh, Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We've got just two sermons left in this series on the Ephesians before we turn our attention to the summer series of sermons. Uh, And this morning, uh, Paul ends his, what some people call his household instructions. Uh, We saw a couple weeks ago, he talked to wives and husbands, then last week to children and fathers and parents. And this week he turns to bond servants or slaves and masters. Now, clearly this raises a lot of questions. We're going to deal with some of those controversial questions throughout today. But uh, we're going to hopefully also derive from it something very relevant to us, even though uh, we don't find ourselves in slavery, praise the Lord, or masters of slaves, praise the Lord. There's still something for us to learn here. So let's pay attention to the word. Bond servants, obey your masters, your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord, amen? Let me ask you this. Would you do your job if you received no recognition for what you did? Would you do your job if it didn't give you any kind of status in the community? Would you do your job if you never earned a paycheck for it? Anybody saying yes this morning? Probably not. Maybe some of you say, yeah, I do. Already done, right? Sometimes that happens to us, but in general, we would mostly say no. And uh, think about it this morning. That, for us, is a hypothetical question for most of us. We don't have to think about that being true. It's not going to be true, probably, for us. But for many Christians throughout the history of the world, that has been far more than a hypothetical question. That has been their everyday reality. They were enslaved, and they had to do their work without any recognition, without any status, and without a single paycheck. Uh, Some estimates uh, go that... During Paul's day in the Roman Empire, as many as one out of four or one out of five people in the empire were slaves. That's a lot of people. And uh, add to that that most people estimate that far greater percentages were slaves in the church. Uh, It was one one of the uh, arguments against Christianity, in fact, in the early days that why would we want to be Christians? All it does is attract women, children, and slaves. That's a weak religion, people said. That's literally in writing. People said that about Christianity in the early centuries. Women, children, slaves. Why don't we want to be a part of that? It's weak people. The fact is, maybe as many, one writer says, as many as maybe 90% of some of the churches were slaves. Now imagine Paul writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, reaching down. Remember, these are read out loud in the church just like we did this morning. Slaves and maybe masters are sitting in the same room. And Paul reaches down and says, Slaves, 
Here is a whole new way of doing your work, even though you don't get paid for it. Masters, here's a whole new way of doing your work, even though the world tells you you can do whatever you want to do, especially to your slaves. Here's a radically new way of thinking. The gospel can transform the way you work. Yes, even you, O slave and O master. Now think about it. If the gospel can transform the way a slave in the first century Roman Empire worked, do you think it can transform the way you work? If it can transform the way a master in the Roman Empire can work, do you think it can change the way you do your work? I think it can. Now, of course, there is the question, is Paul here condoning slavery in general? Why doesn't he call for its outlaw? Uh, we're going to talk about that as we go through, but we're gonna, not going to try to focus there today. We're going to try to focus on what does this passage say about the transforming power of the gospel for our work. Take a look at your uh, bulletin. There are three things to note. First of all, what kind of change does the gospel bring to our work? What kind of change? Secondly, why do we need that kind of change? And thirdly, how can we see it happen in our lives? How can we experience that change in our own work every day? So first of all, what kind of change does it bring? Well, right away we have the controversial question. Uh, in verse 5 and verse 9, Paul addresses slaves and then he addresses masters, which, by the way, you can notice the same pattern. Uh, he had addressed wives before husbands, children before fathers, and now slaves before masters. Uh, Paul is kind of already upsetting the apple cart just in the way he's talking to people. The gospel's already changed the way he talks to people and the way he writes. Amazing. But a lot of people jump to the offense here or the defense and say, wait a minute, why doesn't Paul say in verse 5, bond servants, hold on, here's my three-step plan to abolish slavery in the Roman Empire. Or here's my three-step plan to come set you free. Why doesn't he say in verse 9, masters, watch out, I'm coming for you. You're going down. Why doesn't he say that? Why instead does he say what seems to be a little bit of disappointment in verse 5, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, as if you were serving God. And then, you know, not as disappointingly, but in verse 9 he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Why does he go there instead of slavery is bad, slavery is wrong, get rid of it? Well, a lot of people have spent a lot of ink on this. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, Christians have often been uh, dis in disagreement over this question. In fact, our, the history of our own country bears the scars of that. Uh, there have been many pastors in the past in this country who have stood up in pulpits to say, look, Paul says slavery is A-OK, -okay, it's good, it's the way God intended it. But I want to show you that can't be true. That can't actually be true. Uh, number one, let, let me just give you a couple of pieces of evidence. Number one. Uh, when it came to wives and husbands, Paul reasoned like this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because God designed it that way in the beginning. He made man and he made woman and he made them to be together as complementary, two different kinds of people who join in one. And Jesus Christ saves the church in the same way and so therefore do it. With children and parents, he says, kids, obey your parents because God commanded it. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Notice there is nothing in verses uh, 5 through 9 in chapter 6 that says anything about slaves obey your masters because God intended it that way. God designed human beings, some are masters and some are slaves. He doesn't say that. He, in fact, the Bible never says that, ever. Ever. 
And yet, here's the thing. While the Bible recognizes that every human being, no matter who they are, no matter what race they are, no matter what their background is, they're made in the image of God, yet nevertheless, the Bible doesn't always come to the problems of society and immediately try to fix the outward. A lot of times, the Bible goes at the outward by coming around and getting into the inward first. Do you hear me? Uh, you know, it doesn't say, here's how to abolish slavery. It says, no, here's how to abolish the master-slave abuses that are resident in your heart. Which is, as one writer says, a way of abolishing slavery from within. Uh, what, if, what if you invited some friends over to your house and you said, hey, I've got some painting to do. Would you come help me? Everybody loves that, right? To be invited with that uh, thing. We've got some painting to do. Come paint. Here's the walls. I've already got the colors picked out. Well, what if they came and they showed up with plumbing tools and equipment and electrical equipment and new flooring? And they came and said, hey, we decided we're not going to help you paint. Instead, we're going to replumb your house, rewire it, and give you all new flooring. That'd be nice. Maybe that would be nice. It would, it would only be nice if you think you have bad plumbing, bad wiring, and bad flooring. If you don't think you have bad those, you'd be offended, wouldn't you? Like, wait a minute. The pipes are working fine. The lights are turning off and off and on fine. There's no hazard. Uh, why don't you like my floor? I picked it out. I just asked you to come paint. Something like that's happening here. You know, Paul doesn't say, hey, abolish it all, tear it down, no more slavery forever. Instead, what he does is he comes to replumb the house of the human heart because that's the reason why Jesus came. And once the human heart is replumbed and reworked from the inside out by the gospel, that can and actually has, I think, throughout history led to massive changes in the outside, right? It has led to big changes because, in fact, for all the people that sadly did stand up in pulpits and say, look, God believes in slavery and Africans are meant to be enslaved to Europeans. For all the people that did that, there were other people who stood up and said, wait a minute. Don't you notice how it says masters do the same to your slaves that you would want them to do to you in verse 9? Don't you see how that principle undermines everything about the institution of slavery? Right? And in fact, it was that line of thinking that did, in fact, that did lead to the abolition of the slave trade, mostly throughout the world, although we should pray there are still people in bondage today. There are still places where slavery is present, and even in some places underground here, it is present. We should pray. But Jesus comes not simply to fix the outside first, he comes to fix the inside. Because it's the inside that has made the outside bad to begin with. You got that? It's the bad plumbing that has led to the damaged house called humanity and called the world. And so Jesus comes to replumb, to reorder the heart, to change our affections. And so notice how Paul points out the heart problems. You know, he says, servants don't give just merely eye service, verse 6. Don't just simply please people. This is the problem of the servant only giving the master what he wants to see when he wants to see it so that it keeps the master off his back. But he withholds his heart from serving. Paul says instead, no, here's what Jesus does. He causes you to fear and tremble before God. In other words, to reverence God 
so that you obey your earthly masters and serve them because you know deep down that you're serving God. You know that he's your ultimate master. That's a change of heart. And then the masters. We've pointed it out already how radical it is in verse 9 when he says, Masters, do the same to your servants. Do the same thing I'm telling the servants to do to you. Do the same to them. Love them. Honor them. Respect them. Don't threaten them. Don't, don't you know, turn the screws and tighten the, the vice grip on them all the time just because you want to get more out of them. Instead, treat them like human beings. Why? Because you know that you have a master in heaven too, and he's the same master that they have. And with God, there is no partiality. Uh, God is not going to one day judge people based on their position in society. And some people in one position are going to get graded on a curve, and other people are going to get graded on a different way. God is going to grade everybody by the same exact standard. And so the heart... Can come, should come into line with that and should be changed by that rather than the prejudice and the lack of respect and the lack of integrity and the lack of hard work and industry that so often characterizes our work as well as the work of people in the first century. God came to change hearts. And I want to tell you, the same thing is true for you and your work. And this could be revolutionary if you thought about it. It could be revolutionary. So often when you think about the problems at work, you think, oh, Lord, give me a better job. Give me a better office. Give me a better boss. Give me better employees. Uh, give me a better paycheck. Give me a better position. Give me more praise. Give me this. Give me that. Change the circumstances. But we do not often pray, oh, God, change this wicked heart of mine which makes me unfit for my circumstances to begin with. And if my heart is so wicked that it can't handle these circumstances, do I think I'm going to be able to handle those other ones? Where supposedly the grass is greener on the other side, right? See, changing circumstances only relocates the problem. It relocates it. It moves it from one place to another, one job to the next. But it doesn't actually change the problem, fix the problem. And that's something that the gospel of Jesus Christ does because the gospel proclaims a new heart. It proclaims that you will be forgiven through the blood of Jesus that he shed for you on the cross and that by the gift of Jesus that he gives of the Holy Spirit, your heart can actually be made new, that you could actually become someone who respects people because you respect God. And who wants to serve because God has served you. And who wants to work hard even when no one's looking because you know he's looking. And he's the one that ultimately is going to reward you anyway. And his judgment is based on his standard and not on yours or theirs or anybody else's. That's a radical, that's a radical change. Don't you agree? Think about it this morning. Begin to ask. Instead of God, give me this, give me that, new circumstance, new this, new that. Begin to ask God. What do you want to teach my heart in my work? What are you trying to do in my heart through my daily work and employment? By the way, this is true of you if you're a kid, a student in school, or if you're retired. Everybody's got an employment of some sort. Something is employing you. Something is occupying you. God, what are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to form my heart? That's the first thing. Now, secondly, 
we got to understand why we need it. Why we need it. And you say, well, that's obvious. The reason why you need a new heart is why? You got a bad heart. Same thing as the reason why you need new plumbing in your house is why? You got bad plumbing. And the scripture tells us from beginning to end, as well as here, is that the, the basic problem that you and I face is that our hearts actually are wicked, but they're wicked in a particular way. Uh, Jeremiah said this, the heart, human heart is desperately wicked. Who can cure it? In fact, he says, who can even understand it, first of all? And have you ever recognized that about your own heart? You can't even understand it, let alone cure it. I mean, how, how often does your heart change directions? Do you want the same things now that you wanted when you were 16 years old? Hopefully not, unless you're still 16 or 17. Hopefully you've grown out of that, right? Your heart has shifted. And so at any given moment, it's very hard for us to even understand what's going on in our hearts, let alone fix them. And the Bible says, here's the number one thing that's wrong with the heart. Our hearts were made to glorify God. Our hearts were made to be occupied or even preoccupied with the things of heaven, so to speak, the things of God. But, but in reverse, our hearts are enmeshed in earthly things. Our hearts are attached to created things rather than the creator. In fact, everything we do at work every single day depends on where our heart is aimed. If our heart is aimed to the glory of God, we're going to work in a certain way. If our heart is enmeshed with the things of this world and aimed at selfish goals, we're going to work in another way. That's why Paul says to the slaves, don't do the way of eye service. Don't be people pleasers. Now think about why, why would a slave back in Roman Empire, why would they merely give eye service and simply try to please the master to get him off their back? Obvious answer, right? They probably had, there's no love lost between the servant and the master because the master owns them and probably mistreats them. If, if it's an average master-slave relationship at the time, it probably wasn't a good one. And so there was a bitterness. They also had learned over long experience what it took to please them, and they, they went only that far. And they would give no more, just that far in order to please them so that they wouldn't bother. It was just easier. And after all, even if I give the extra mile, they might have thought, what am I really going to get out of it? It's not like he's going to pay me overtime. It's not like I'm going to get anything extra if I go the extra mile. So why go the extra mile? Notice, the reason why a slave in the ancient world might want to give eye service or people please is because they're fixed on earthly outcomes and not on heavenly realities. They're enmeshed in earthly questions rather than heavenly questions. It's not, what does God want so that I can please him because I'm made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Instead, it's, well, if I'm not going to get this outcome or that outcome, I'm not doing it. Same thing with the masters. Why do you think masters in the first century threatened their slaves, as it says in verse 9? Why did they use abuse and threats and even maybe physical abuse? Why did they do that? Same reason. They thought, these people don't listen to me. They are bitter to me. They just do the bare minimum. And so in order to squeeze everything, all the outcomes out of them that I want, I'm going to turn the screws. And I'm going to be harsh with them. Bring down the iron fist. 
Same thing. This person is also obsessed with earthly outcomes rather than heavenly ones. It's not, I'm here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's, I'm here to squeeze every last ounce out of these people so that I can benefit from their labors on the cheap. Listen, this is a very important principle. If you do what is right only because it produces an earthly outcome, you will not always do what is right. In fact, you'll rarely do what is right because doing what is right rarely has the kind of earthly outcomes we want them to have. Y'all hear me? If you, if you do what is right only because it produces an earthly outcome, you will not do what is right very often. You will not be consistent. But if you do what is right simply because it's right, because God said it's right, and because you know that God is the rewarder of those who seek him, and you know that God loves you and has made you his servant and his son and daughter, then you'll do what is right no matter what the earthly outcomes are. And that very thing is, the, is what Paul is trying to get at here. Instead of coming and saying, look, slavery will be abolished. Don't worry. Just wait for it. He says, no, first, think about what God wants to do in your heart. And here's why you need it. Because your heart is enmeshed in earthly things. And God has you in the situation he has you right now in order to wean you off of your love for earthly outcomes so that you will be dependent upon heavenly outcomes. Have you ever thought about that? That your work is so hard because God's trying to wean you off of stuff and off of people and off of temporary things so that your hope could really be fixed where it will never be disappointed in him and in the things of him? Wow, we don't think that way, do we? And that's why we need the change of heart that only the gospel can bring. Everybody's heart is kind of like a compass. Or at least it's meant to be a compass. You know how a compass works? The red arm, it's got a magnet in it. It's magnetized. And because of the gravitational ma magnetic pull of the earth toward the North Pole, it always is going to point north. Every, no matter where you turn, that thing is going to always, this is north. It's always going to be going that way. You can turn any way and it's going to stay that way. But kids and some of you adults may remember Captain Jack Sparrow's compass in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Remember that compass? It was like a magic compass. It pointed to whatever the holder wanted most at any given time. And so people, other people would get his compass and be like, what? Because it would just be swirling around because it pointed to what the heart wanted. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need to be restored to our lives being for the glory of God. It's because our hearts were meant to point true north. And God is the only one who is true north. Never failing, never changing, never letting us down. Always coming through on his promises. And yet our hearts are broken. They're like Captain Jack Sparrow's compass. They're just pointing to whatever we want at any given time. And if your heart is like that, you're not going to work very well. You're going to work with lack of integrity. You're going to work with frustration. You're going to work with outbursts of anger. You're going to turn the screws unnecessarily on people under you. And you're going to resent people above you. Because all you're looking for is an earthly outcome. Enter the gospel of Jesus. Because here's what the gospel of Jesus promises. The Bible calls it new birth. Fancy word, regeneration. That's what you need. 
That's what I need. We need to be born again, which is what Jesus says he'll do. Everybody who believes in him has been born again, he says. You've been born again. Meaning God has come into you, and he's taken that old heart out, and he's replaced it with a new heart. Instead of a heart that just points to whatever you want at any moment, he's given you a heart that once again points to God. Fear the Lord. Worship him. Serve him. Obey him. Be his servant. That's what your new heart does. Well, here's another Bible word. Sanctification. We need that one too. That one means becoming more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. So once the new heart is given in regeneration, God comes and sanctifies us by making the new heart bigger, more mature, more developed, where we're applying the new heart to more situations of our lives. We need both of those things working at all the time in order to have any hope for change in our work because the problem with your work is not your work. And it's not your boss. He may be a problem. She may be a problem. But it ain't, that ain't your problem. That's her problem or his problem. Your problem and my problem right here. Praise God for the hope of being born again. And if you're born again, praise God that he hasn't left you just to be born again and an infant in him. He's, he's come to you to grow you from infancy to young childhood to teenagerdom in spiritual t- terms to adulthood. Mature manhood, Paul had said, remember in Ephesians chapter 4. Mature manhood to where you're able to walk and serve with him. That's what, God, that's what God is offering here, even to slaves in first century Rome, and he's offering it to masters in first century Rome, so much so that it would abolish slavery from within because masters and slaves would treat one another as they want to be treated because they both fear God. Wow. Now, thirdly, how does the change happen in our lives? How does it work out? Well, of course, we've already said you've got to be born again. But... If you're born again, there's a way for you to participate every day in your sanctification. Y'all ready? Y'all want to hear about this? There's a way for you to participate in your daily growth in holiness. And here's what I would call it. It's developing your spiritual mindedness. You need to learn, I need to learn how to develop my spiritual mindedness in my work. Great story in the Old Testament that illustrates this. Elisha the prophet is trapped in the city of Dothan. An army wants to kill him. The army lines up outside of the city. Not Dothan, Alabama, by the way, but Dothan in Israel. And the army's around the city. And Elisha's scared. But he goes outside and God opens his eyes to see an army of angels surrounding like a hedge around the city between the city and the army. And Elijah's okay. But Elijah's assistant doesn't see it. And so he's over there, whew, whew, this is bad. We're in a tight spot, you know, this is bad. And Elisha says, he just stops and he prays. I love that. He prays out loud for his friend, just, just automatically. Lord, open his eyes so that he can see what's really true. What's not seen by the eyes, but what is spiritually nevertheless true. That's spiritual mindedness. And God actually does that. And so the, the servant goes out, the, the assistant to Elisha goes out and looks, and there they are. The flaming, on fire 
angel warriors standing between them and the army. That's what I mean. There is a way for you every day to cultivate that kind of vision, that kind of spiritual mindedness. The Bible says it this way in Romans 8, 6. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. But to set the mind on the flesh is death. To mind merely earthly things is death. But to have a spiritual mind is life and peace. Colossians 3 says this, Since Christ is seated at the right hand of God, let your mind be set there and not on earth. Philippians 2 says, Since Jesus had this mind to become a servant for you, have that same mind in yourself that was in him and be a servant to others and a servant to God like he was. Do you see what what those those verses are saying? They're saying, learn how to take on the mind of Christ. Learn how to see the world as it really is, even though you can't see it with your physical eyes. And that takes practice. That takes effort. That takes you employing every power and fiber of your being. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, I read a book called Practicing the Presence of God, a little small book by a man named Brother Lawrence. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a monk in the 17th century, I think. so a long time ago, over 400 years ago. And, uh, you know, you would think a monk would have the work, faith, balance down pretty well. But he didn't. And he was discouraged by it. Uh, if you don't know about monks, they, they go every day between hours of prayer and, and hours and periods of work. They go back and forth, prayer and work. An hour of prayer, two hours of work. An hour of prayer, two hours of work. And Brother Lawrence was really convicted because he would go to prayer and there was God. And wow, it was awesome. He would worship and there was God. But then he would go back to keeping the bees and making the wine and all the things he was doing. And he would forget God altogether. Then he'd go back to prayer and there was God. Then he'd go back to his work and where was God? He would totally lose it. Don't you relate? Uh, Isn't that the way it is? I mean, listen, this is proof number one that becoming a monk doesn't solve it. Right? That's not the right way to go, obviously. But it's also proof, too, everybody struggles with this. Well, the whole book is about the secret that Brother Lawrence discovered, which he called practicing the presence of God, which I would just say is spiritual mindedness. And he started when he went back out to his beekeeping and to his winemaking and all those things, he would take God with him, so to speak. He would imagine that God was right there beside him as he worked. He would imagine Christ within him as he worked. While he was scrubbing the floor, he would think, Lord, I'm scrubbing this. He'd even say it out loud. Lord, I'm scrubbing this to show you how much I love you. As he cut the honeycomb, he would say, Jesus, you lay down your life for me, and here I am using all my mental and physical powers to lay down for you as as an offering of thanks and praise. Oh, Lord, help me. My thoughts are wondering. Bring me back to you, he would say, throughout the day. And as he began to do that as a habit in his life, he began to discover that God was every bit as there when he was at the apiary and the vineyard as when he was in the chapel. You can do that too. Just look. Look look at verse 8 and then the end of verse 9. Notice what Paul says. Paul says to the servants, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond or free. And then he says to the masters, verse 9, knowing, see that same phrase, knowing, knowing, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. In other words, the secret to this is what you know and what you do with what you know. 
knowing indicates an ongoing development of knowledge and an ongoing application of it, like Brother Lawrence, like spiritual mindedness. You take what you know and you put it into your life. You take him with you. And you remind yourself of the great truths about God. I mean, what if you remembered at work, there is a God and he's my master. This boss, yeah, they're my earthly boss, as verse 5 says. They're earthly. But that's all they are, just earthly boss. I've got a heavenly boss. That's who I'm really working for. He's here. He sees me. He shows no partiality. He doesn't see one whit of difference between me and those under me or me and those above me. He wants the service from the heart from all of us. And here I am to render it to him. What if you remembered Christ in your daily work? And here's the thing about Jesus. He proves that whatever was wrong with slavery, and there was a lot of things wrong with slavery, a lot of things in history. But here's one thing that wasn't wrong with slavery. The, the willing service to another human being. That's not what was wrong with it. In fact, everybody was made to do that. In fact, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, who had everything, the cattle on a thousand hills, willingly chose to become a slave for us, Philippians 2. And served with all his heart as father and served us all the way to the point of the cross. What's wrong with work is not that you have to serve other people. Jesus proves that. And so what if you remembered it every day? Jesus, in serving this person, even though they're grumpy, I remember how you served me and I'm grumpy. And I'm hard to serve. And you you served me with all your heart when I was an enemy of yours. And here I am having to serve this stinky boss. And yet, Lord, bless them and bless me as I serve them because... You have served me, and you've proved that servanthood is not demeaning when it's done from the heart. Servanthood is the most kingly, noble thing that a human being can do. In evidence, I present Jesus. You prove me wrong. (laughs) Right? In evidence, there is Jesus. Exhibit, Exhibit A. Try to argue with that one, right? Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And then what? Listen to this. What if you remembered heaven? Heaven. For many Christians around the world today, and especially in history, especially these who were slaves, sometimes that was all they had to go on. I mean, sometimes their their conditions on earth were so terrible. And the change never happened that they were looking for in their circumstances. They had to live out the rest of their days in suffering. All they had to cling to was, God, you're drawing me up to heaven. I know that because, Jesus, you're already there in heaven for me, and I I can almost see you there, seated at the right hand of God, and the gravitational pull of my heart is now towards true north. It's towards you seated on the throne. And I know that whatever I'm going through here, listen, whatever I'm going through here, even if it lasts the rest of my life, It's temporary. Let me say that one again. Whatever I'm going through here, even if it lasts the rest of my life, it's temporary. This is the kind of change that Jesus Christ proposes to bring to your life in the area of your work. You say, well, that's more than I bargained for. Sometimes it is, right? I love how Jesus does that. 
He gives us far more than we bargain for. I said, Jesus, all I was asking for was a raise. I just wanted you to come help me paint the walls. And here you are to, to replumb me. This is, this is hard. And yet I'm going to tell you, if you were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which I believe you were, it's the best thing that could ever happen to you. To come underneath the hand of Jesus, to replumb your heart and your whole life. Amen? Let's pray together.